Hello and welcome to Princeton University, which today is the latest venue for Voluminous, the new feminist-centred podcast hosted by me, artist Andre Valou. I'm here because it's time that we heard from, from and recorded the voices and personal stories of inspiring, strong, powerful and downright badass women. We got off and running in episode one with Bree Sorrell, the Los Angeles-based artist whose work focuses on gender politics and social commentary. Now, I am delighted to welcome to episode two of Voluminous, Jackie Deitch Stackhouse. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Jackie's the director of the SHARE office at Princeton University. SHARE is an acronym for Sexual Harassment, Assault Advising, Resources and Education. I'll let her explain what that means and tell, and tell you about her own work. But let's first find out how I know Jackie. So, Jackie, why don't you tell me, tell, her, tell the listeners how we know each other? Well, we had an opportunity to meet um, when we were involved with the Women's Space Advisory Board. And so I was at a committee meeting that we ran into each other. I had the good fortune to do so. Uh, and that's when we started our conversation about how we might be able to work together, how you might be able to take your artwork out of the studio and into a more collaborative space. Um, and so the idea was really intriguing, and um, our conversations really began there. I, and we began our, what, our eight-month, mm -hmm. I guess, yep. uh, venture into creating the Enthusiastic Consent Art Workshop. Yeah, that was, a, that was a great project. I really enjoyed it, and I'm certainly looking forward to doing it again soon. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So, yeah, that was, it, was a, it was a real privilege to work with you, Thank and you. the whole team here, actually. Thanks. So, uh, moving on to your work here in Princeton. Princeton, you are the director of the SHARE office. Correct. And maybe you want to tell us what that means, the SHARE office, and what its mission is. Sure. So the SHARE office actually dates back to the late 1980s at Princeton. So I think after Rutgers, we may have been the first and the second in the state to have such an office that supports um, mainly survivors of interpersonal violence and abuse. Uh, and so back in the day, that was the main focus of the office. It was for support clinically to help folks who needed counseling. Um, and really just make sure that they had what they needed to heal from whatever harm they had experienced. But when, when I came here in 2012, it was after they had re-envisioned the office. There was a true need to expand the capacity of the office and the focus, so it wasn't just about supporting people, but also trying to get out in front of the issues. So today, the share office looks a lot different than it did back then. As you might imagine, we are we have more capacity in bodies wise. Um, the issue is also much more a part of the national discourse, uh, a lot more attention on it. Um, so it does look different in many ways than it did back in the 80s. But I'll say, just to give you a little bit of a sense of it all, we, the SHARE office attends to interpersonal violence and abuse, right? And so for us, that portfolio includes sexual harassment, sexual assault, dating and domestic violence, as well as stalking. We also add on to the edge unhealthy relationships. Mm -hmm. um, for us, we're trying to uh, tackle really scary subject matter for the student body, um, that being our focus audience. Um, it's you, when you think about what it might take for someone who has experienced one of these things to come into an office and talk to like the quote unquote adult. Mm -hmm. It's it's very challenging. There's yeah. many obstacles um, that are individual, identity-based. They are based on the experience, this idea that you have to name yourself maybe as a victim. That word is really tough. Mm -hmm. um, or even point to someone that you know or care about or love or have loved as a person who harmed you. Maybe that, the label for them is perpetrator or mm -hmm. offender. Or, ugh, it's really hard. Yeah. 
So for us, what we try to do is we try to lower the bar for entry, which is why we talk about unhealthy relationships as well. So much rather someone come in when it's something's wrong, even if, quite frankly, sometimes it's possible that the behavior itself has already risen to the level of a crime, mm-hmm. like sexual assault, but it may be safer for a person individually to identify that as an unhealthy relationship, like something's wrong. Um, and so it might be okay to come in for that, but let's not talk about it being the assault word. Like that word is really off limits at first. Um, so this kind of helps us open the doors for folks to come in. Because yeah, for, it's for the victims to just be in control of the whole situation. Yes, we do really have an empowerment model. Mm-hmm. We want folks who have been harmed to start to regain some of their agency. You know, it was just taken away. That's what harm effectively is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if they can come in and they can make the, the conscientious decision to come in and talk to somebody or call us or email us, however they want to, sometimes they're supported by a friend when they come in mm-hmm. or a peer educator. We have a whole peer education program. Uh, we're about just shy of 40 students at this point who are, have different spheres of influence all across campus, different identities. Uh, so they kind of have their own friendship networks and things, and folks will turn to them. Maybe they are members of the same eating club, or they are living in the same res college, or they're on the same a cappella group. And so students may turn to that person that they know to be a share peer to sort of check in with them to see, you know, is this is the share office the kind of place where I can go for this thing? Um, so share peers play this really great bridging role making it so that you know you get some peer affirmation that yeah this is a this counts this matters and somebody will take you seriously and they'll support you and so that somehow folks can actually also get in another way of lowering the bar for entry effectively so, so the share peers they are they are students who mm-hmm. volunteer their time they are. They are strictly volunteers. Yep, almost 40 do of them. they go through some kind of training? They do. They have uh, extensive training, actually. We have a pretty rigorous recruitment process before they even can get into the training. Uh, we usually only accept about 35% of our applicants, um, but we're part of what we're doing there is trying to closely vet the student applicants to see if they have the type of competencies that we're looking for. We need folks to have cross-cultural sensitivity. We need them to have humility. We need them to um, be able to uh, be action-oriented, among other things. So they're like troops on the ground out there, kind of? They are. They really are. I mean, they, in some ways, they're officially on the ground in that they're liaisons to different um, areas, right? So they may be yeah. a liaison to the residential college or to eating clubs or to the LGBTQIA community. Um, we also have bridge year liaisons too for folks who have formerly, they're like alums of that gap year program mm-hmm. and then they can, they stay in contact with folks who are on that program today. So it's, um, we try to strategically align those liaison relationships and, and ensure that folks are in accessible spaces. Um, yeah, so they get, the, yeah. they get the word out as well that you exist and the services are there and everything. They do, and they also, so not only are they, can they serve as first responders or mm-hmm. facilitators in accessing the office, but they also speak, they're also spokespersons for the office, and they are trained to provide prevention education. Um, and even be role models when it comes mm-hmm. to how to do prevention well. So like the, when, you, when we start talk, thinking about what the SHARE office does, uh, it's always been known to support folks who have been harmed. And for us, we look at that, we call them those individuals, those who have, are survivors, as well as co-survivors, mm-hmm. recognizing that there are folks who are not directly impacted sometimes, but, also, but may care very So a co-survivor is somebody the victim knows? It, yes. 
yeah. who's impacted by the situation. Yes. Yeah, so imagine two really good friends, mm-hmm. um, and a person is harmed. They turn to their friend. It's two o'clock in the morning. They mm-hmm. need a shoulder to cry on. Maybe it's their not their friend. Maybe it's their dating partner or their roommate. These are folks who are in it mm-hmm. in a very intimate way, um, and there is that has an impact on folks as well. There's an emotional labor that goes on with that. We believe those folks need a place to be able to process what that's like. Sometimes they know all too well the people and the situations who have caused this. They're watching closely and caring deeply about someone who is going through their own healing process. Uh, And they really can't do their own sort of processing back at that person who's been harmed. They need to do it independently. Um, So they're not putting their own emotional burden back. Yeah, they can't return it to the victims if they they need somebody else to talk to. They do, yes. Mm -hmm. I know you have a lot of um, uh, education for the students Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, when they come in. The the freshmen all get training and stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about all the things you offer the students in kind of this getting in front of the curve kind of thing? Definitely. And because I do think this is really the other half of what Mm -hmm. we do, right? And so... Um, and I love that peers sort of overlap both areas. But yes, it's true. We um, really do think we need to get in front of it as quickly as possible. We're already behind the, um, in that students come to us when they're 17, 18 years old, generally speaking. And, and so during that time, people have a lot of socialization. They've learned from role models. They may have been harmed. They may have done some harm. Uh, so we need to make sure that, the, that folks who are um, coming to us can have a common language and understand what the expectation is around these issues. So we start off with an online training over the summer. Uh, the expectation is that they complete that prior to arrival. Is that compulsory? It is compulsory. Okay, mm-hmm. for all freshmen. For all first-year students, yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they, so we incentivize it first. We always try to, <laughs> We always want education to be something that is viewed positively to the extent mm-hmm. that it can be. Um, in that we, this is such an important issue, the worry would be that if we put the stick out there too early or too strong, um, it could actually deter people from con- connecting with and mm-hmm. engaging with the material in a meaningful way. Ultimately, we want them to sit with it, we want them to reflect on it, uh, we want them to absorb the language around these things and then be able to ultimately apply the skills that we're gonna teach them. So once they have the online training, when they arrive, we actually go through a play. We work very closely mm-hmm. with students um, in a theater group here, on team theater. They mm-hmm. help find us a director, a student director each year who works with us to make sure that the content of the play mm-hmm. actually uh, is going to convey the learning objectives that we have designed for it. So this is so how... This is a play for all freshmen. For all first year students, first yep. Mm-hmm. To see. Yes. Right. Yeah, so it's called The Way You Move. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically it is a story of a group of friends who are navigating the campus um, and a number of unfortunate experiences that are share related. Uh, and so you see what the actual uh, issue is that they're navigating, and then you also see them uh, incorporating bystander intervention, sometimes very effectively, sometimes mm-hmm. not effectively. And then immediately after the play, we have a debrief where we the, the staff is engaging the audience. We do this twice uh, each year, uh, so for half of the freshman class at a time. And mm-hmm. so in that engagement, what we're doing is we're trying to help bring home what it is that they've seen and how it relates to the content explicitly so it's you know kind of tight help them integrate that just a little bit more so Uh, and then we actually engage with them through poll everywhere and other kinds of software where we are asking them questions about what they just saw and what they think and so that gives us a nice little baseline as well on how how they're understanding some of these expectations that we have for them 
the expectation being if you see something, there are a number of ways to intervene, yeah. and that's the expectation of what happens on campus. People on campus here intervene. Kind of that's thing. good. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, because one of the things is whether you can measure what you do, and mm -hmm. surveys one of the things, and whether you think you've seen improvements over time and how you can talk about that. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, the when we start off in that with the training for the first year students where you know we got this online then they come and they have a play and then we have an immediate debrief two weeks later we also engage the peers which gets the peers out in front of the students it starts to make that connection they shore up they, they kind of go review that material one more time with a little bit of a different twist um, and they're attempting to also make sure that we are truly so it's it's really resonating with them um, and then it's from that we actually assess that actual intervention which tells us how we did from the play in these two debriefs. It's sort of say, did we meet those five learning objectives that we had set for ourselves? <clears throat> and typically we do, but mm -hmm. sometimes we find something that might be just a little bit off and we need to kind of, we need to tweak that a little bit to make sure that that particular objective is reached better next year. Um, yeah. So beyond, but beyond the first year students, it's we, you know, for us it's really important to be very intentional about how we address the prevention, right? We want, we want first year students to understand what the expectations are because we want them to contribute right away, but we also need to make sure that the leadership of the student body, that folks who are in influential spaces or in potentially high risk spaces have the tools to be able to create the environments where these things are not happening, mm -hmm. right? And so we have... Um, at this point, we we actually have a theory of change and a logic model. So you're going guide. beyond first year here. You're going through all the years now for yes. everybody. Right? Yes, exactly. So this is just the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. So we actually have a framework that we build off of to try to make sure that we are achieving certain objectives throughout the trajectory um, of a student's experience, particularly at the undergraduate level. That's the most developed uh, curriculum, if you will. Um, so we look at things like the social ecological model, which which really challenges us to not just try to teach a student to do something different or to change their attitudes, right? Because the individual level is really important, but that's not, at the end of the day, going to change a culture, which is what we're going for. So we have individual work. We have group dynamic work that we're doing. We have the institutional work, the community, and the societal work. So there's five levels. How, that's how we approach the work. And we're looking to see change at each of these different levels or some sort of impact. Um, really, you know, sometimes it's change of behavior, sometimes it's a change of policy. Mm -hmm. It really depends. And so the share office really tries to cut at all of these levels to really move the needle, if you will. And so it shows up where we are working with higher risk uh, populations, for example. So we'll, we um, have custom program for all the varsity athletes. What's interesting at Princeton, interesting at Princeton, is that 20% of our undergraduate population are varsity athletes. Okay. So you have 1,100 out of 5,300 students. So this is a huge population. Yep. Um, and these athletes also show up in leadership positions down the road. So not only do we have an opportunity to impact the community that they're in, how they represent us as a university outside, mm -hmm. um, but also what a, there's a ripple effect that happens when this critical mass of individuals is trained. So they have a custom program called Because they'll SCORE. be in leadership positions. They, and they also are naturally viewed as leaders I by see. virtue of their kind of positionality as mm -hmm. a student athlete, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they kind of rise to the, the top in a lot of ways. Um, and they can do so as a positive influence on the culture or mm -hmm. as a negative influence <laughs> with, it, with or without the right so That's tools. why you want to get to them. That's why we want to get to them, yeah, yes. Because they're, they're influencers, if you like. They absolutely are influencers mm -hmm. in a number of ways, and, and, and really powerful ways, especially mm -hmm. when there are single-gender dynamics that are in play. Yeah. They can get concentrated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's so impressive the way that, uh, that the university uh, uh, approaches it on multi-levels, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just about 
kind of you know uh, doing counselling you know there's mm-hmm. all the kind of elements that go into the whole process it's a big investment because yes. you know you have quite a few full-time staff in the department Three, yeah. three other staff by side yeah, myself. So you're working yes. all the time, and I know how mm-hmm. busy you are. So yes, if, but I would say one other thing. The other thing that we try to do, because which is unique to Princeton, are the eating clubs, for example. Yeah, right. Yeah, and absolutely. so, was that maybe you were going to ask me a question about <laughs> that? But I think so. You know, we have eleven eating clubs um, on our campus. Some are selective in nature, so they have to go through this interview process. Some are sign-in, where first come, first serve, type of thing. Um, but they effectively do support anywhere from like 68 to 70 percent of our upper class students have some involvement as members in there it means they're paying members they're eating their meals there they're socializing there it is the heart of the social scene for the university uh, and so it is one of those spaces they're all co-ed mm-hmm. um, so they kind of operate you know they're, they're not a fraternity because um, they are co-ed in nature but and but they um, have some of those risk elements that can be associated with Greek life um, yeah. They are in their own private buildings. These homes that they, where all of this activity takes place, are privately owned. Are they self-regulating? They are self-regulating mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Um, yeah. There are there are there are significant ties to the university, um, and the relationships have gotten stronger over the years. So there is this real, almost an interdependence, if you will, um, both financially. Because uh, these are these are meal plans that happen out here, and so what we one of the things financially that the university does, which is quite significant, for example, is they'll make sure that it's possible to do meal exchange for people who have a dining hall plan, um, and as well as somebody who has a, an eating club plan. So I think it's worth probably millions of dollars. Is this actual the contractual relationship that ties the two <laughs> together? So it's very significant, but also along with that, there, because the relationship has um, grown, even in the eight years I've been here, um, I've seen what happened is there's much more receptivity to taking guidance and bringing in us to have you know, uh, significant trainings in those spaces or to serve as consultants as, these, as students are trying to navigate really challenging stuff. Yeah. Um, so we have a whole uh, series of trainings that we do for the eating clubs explicitly yeah. with all of this in mind. You know, there's a, it's a risk area, and yet there's receptivity. We've been cultivating this relationship. So we try to, and everything we try to do is, is designed to be developmentally appropriate, right? So when new members come in, we want to give them a sense of what they can expect in the club and where to turn and what it's supposed to look like. Um, when, they're, when they are full members, it's, it's effectively a two two-year experience all right so right. when they're full members in the fall of their junior year we're talking with them all at once about the climate of their club and consent um, and you know what it would look like if they had a share related issue in the club how would that impact them what would it I mean for real not just yeah. not hypothetically but you know what does breakfast look like the next day how do you feel about the officers in your club what is it what is it, how does this impact your recruitment efforts, right? So we ground them there and then go into bystander intervention where we talk through legitimate scenarios that they might experience. We literally pull from them. What is an area in your building that concerns you? You know, if you're on duty and you have some sort of security responsibility, that you, you're going to keep an eye out for that space. Like, what does that look like? And how are we going to tackle it? And for us, it's also really important when we have these face-to-face uh, like real interventions from an educational standpoint, we really want to make sure we're getting people to think about some of some of the risk that's really going on, and we challenge folks. So, a lot of times, folks can do bystander intervention, which is a mainstay of, of a lot of the training that we do. They can do bystander intervention if it's someone maybe they know well, you know, that kind of a thing. And especially if it's somebody where if the thing that's happening is something that they're familiar with. 
So sometimes we, we put them in a scenario, sort of a hypothetical scenario, they think it through, and then we'll say, you know, we're not really sure from a gender perspective what exactly you were thinking about in that scenario, but let's pretend that all the parties, the person who potentially was about to do harm and the person who was on the receiving end of potential harm, let's pretend that they're the same gender. So maybe they're a woman-identified individuals, maybe they're man-identified, maybe they're genderqueer or non-binary. Mm-hmm. How might that impact your bystander intervention? So we really try to challenge folks to think in intersectional ways um, and make sure that they have the skills to truly apply the, the bystander intervention uh, to navigate and create these safe spaces, not just for some of our white heterosexual individuals, but rather for the broader community. And that part of the reason why we do that is because it's really important that these, that these issues are not, um, they're not, they're experienced in different ways by different people depending on identities. And if you start, as you start to layer in identities, yeah. it becomes, the, the intersections are really critical to understanding the work. And they can also be obstacles to accessing resources or intervening when intervention yeah. is necessary. So we want to get them thinking about it because that's real. And this is part of this is undergirded by what our data will show us in some of the climate surveys that we've done, that we do have significant vulnerabilities for students who identify in the LGBTQIA community, for example. Yeah, the, the students, I mean, everybody wants to intervene, don't mm-hmm. they? And they don't, they don't feel confident, they don't have the skills There's many themselves, obstacles, yes. right? There's, so if you can like, break down those barriers, it's, like a, it's, mm-hmm. a huge, it's a huge step forward. That's because, what we're going for. Because, you know, that's like stopping it at the, the source, isn't mm-hmm. it? And then mm-hmm. it doesn't get to the all the other levels that could happen afterwards. Right, and that's part of the reason why we train the officers, because they have particular responsibility, so they have their own training where they can go a little bit deeper into and role-playing out some of these situations, which is really helpful. Yeah, and that's kind of the world we're looking for, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Where the world where, you know, non-consensual things and abuse and stuff is, is stopped doesn't happen, and we, everybody's collectively yes. acting against it. Yes, we believe it takes a community to do that. I mean, yeah. that's part of the reason, part of, sometimes what we see on college campuses is a significant portion of the community are not engaged in that work. Typically, men-identified folks, right? Mm-hmm. They come through the K through 12 system. They're basic. Somebody's talked to them at one point in their life, and they've and they've heard the message that either they're, if they're not a perpetrator now, they will be someday. So it's really toxic how they can come yeah. in. Um, socialization messages make it very challenging for men to fully engage in this work. Um, and so we try to go right at that. That's our Maverick initiative, right, where we're looking at toxic masculinity. This is yeah. the men's allied voices for a respectful and inclusive community, Giving, making sure that men feel they can be a part of this work. Many men are drawn to the work, don't know how to engage it, or have to overcome obstacles um, that maybe um, they may be due to generational trauma. I'm thinking yeah. of folks who identify as people of color, you know, and, and looking at how societally we have how the interconnections really on race and and violence and how it has been um, unfortunately used against men of color yeah. for a long time, right? And so there are particular obstacles for, for significant populations on our campus to engage in the prevention work. We want them all a part of it. So we want to yeah. remove those barriers to prevention as well. Yeah, so if we kind of, I mean, because you're dealing with the critical population, there are young young people, and mm-hmm. I like to use these uh, discussions to talk about kind of wider things and yes. women's issues. You know, we have the Me Too movement now, but at the end of the mm-hmm. day, one in three women will suffer sexual violence mm-hmm. in their lives. Mm-hmm. You are right there on the front line of the young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you see the, it kind of developing from here? How can we change, you know, the future with the kind of work that you do? Mm-hmm. No, I appreciate the question because I think that when we think about the Me Too movement, right, I, you know, when I think about the origins of it, again, it's much like I was just talking about, 
you know, Tarana Burke, she's the one that creates this thing. And it's, and it's got some following, but it's relatively small because the focus is on elevating brown and black voices mm-hmm. uh, because their, their stories have not been heard fully. And then you have a white woman, Alyssa Milano, who takes this and elevates that. Um, and now you, it, what's interesting is you start to see oftentimes white women taking on men in power. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting to kind of watch even how that has evolved as a, as an, yeah. as a kind of a movement, if you will. Um, but I think, so then you think about, let's relay this back to Princeton. You know, at Princeton, on some level, when folks walk out of here with a Princeton degree, that tends to give open doors yeah. for folks. And so they can show up um, in leadership roles almost immediately. Um, and, and so if we, part of the way I think about this, and this may seem like kind of like too big of a task, but it, some, how I frame it is that, you know, we have four years to kind of get this right. To yeah. a certain extent, give them the tools that they need so they can see the problems. And you're talking about men them. and women. Cause oh, yeah, I'm talking exactly, about... Exactly, yeah, because it's, it's not a woman's issue. It is, is it? not. It, it's... It's everybody. Everybody, yeah. Them is my entire undergraduate population. We've got four years to get this right, to give them those tools so when they launch from here, they are treating other people with respect, they are overseeing people that are treating people with respect, that people aren't abusing their power in these positions, right? Because they're going to go into places where oftentimes they're going to have some level of power very early on in their careers. Mm -hmm. And if not, at some point, that's where they're going to go. We see our graduates. We've got Supreme Court justices. We've had presidents of the United States. We've got, you know, you name it. They're, that's where this path goes. So, or can for mm-hmm. some, you know, are particularly successful. So I think that the Me Too movement is really an interesting moment. Um, for folks who have been doing the work for a long time, you know, it's not new information that people have abused power and that the data, you know, that, that so many people have been harmed in these ways. On some level, it's been eye-opening to the rest of the world and watching how folks kind of accept that or reject that notion because it sort of challenges their own view on the world is really interesting. But mm-hmm. I, th- I think there's, for me, I, the back, this, it's sort of like a, it's a, it's a powerful time um, where, you know, folks can actually speak truth to power and there may actually be some consequences it's interesting to watch as we get to be a couple years out when folks <laughs> yeah. start to have been against whom complaints have been made um, and possibly even, you know, uh, kind of legal kinds of um, you know, uh, processes have been yeah. pursued or what have you. So it's, and then now you have them where maybe you've had some sort of a civil settlement and now that person is back into the limelight and you're what's happening here what are we really saying as a community like are we is this a yeah, are we addressing it are we fully addressing yeah. it is it, it do we we subscribe to cancel culture fully or only you pay your dues and then you're fine yeah. welcome on back um so the issue of sexual assault is really interesting and in how the community at large views it but hopefully moving forward people won't accept it at the outset that would be a change because people have be forced from power and control relationships. People have been forced to accept these situations with mm-hmm. no power to challenge it. Right. So one first step would be that people would be able to challenge it. And I think we're, we are seeing that and there's been some results. I feel like before the Me Too movement, I'm thinking of some of the most popular cases that have happened mm-hmm. and the backlash against the survivors who had brought forward the allegations and how scary it was. And we'll yeah. even see a ripple effect. You know, if there's a big public case that comes out and the person against whom the accusations are made gets off, 
um, then we will see uh, people who will reflect on that and decide, do I want to come forward? Because I saw yeah. how that went down. So this is, a, this is a helpful modeling for how people can be successful in even taking on these uh, really powerful individuals. But I would say that if we, the real change really, in my mind, again, comes at the broader institutional level. The institutional level, at the community and societal levels. Like, so when we start to see policy changes that come into play, where it's not just enough to pick off this one person or that one person did harm, but also go at the systems that are allowing the harms to happen. Right, so you know, we have what we see from higher ed, which is really interesting, I think, is that the professional disciplines um, have started to take things upon themselves to say, you know what, we want to make sure that anyone's affiliated with this national organization, our national organization, we're going to put some regulations in here. And we're going, yeah. to, we're going to actually put behavioral expectations <laughs> in there, which is incredible because those things have not been discussed. That, Just you on know, an organizational level. Right? On an organizational exactly, level, yes. Yeah. And, that, and these things matter in higher education and elsewhere when it comes to, you know, how somebody is recognized and um, or shows up as a an expert, if you will, right? If you're not attached to such and such professional discipline or you don't have um, committee leadership roles or whatever else, then you're not equal to somebody else for jobs or, uh, you know, when it comes to Nobel Prize applications or whatever. So these things really matter professionally, um, even for the strongest amongst us within higher education and for the pathway that's for students who are ultimately moving from the undergrad to graduate to professional kind of path. You know, what do they see? Is this a safe trajectory? Or do they actually need to remove themselves from the academy in order to feel like they are, they have options and, yeah. and they can be, you know, all that they, they can be. So I think that these, that's really interesting. So when it's watching that movement, watching policy change, even in the federal government, right? Watching the, how the, the, the Congress is taking care of itself a little bit better <laughs> and revamping their yeah, own yeah. policies on harassment, yeah, right? Been, yeah. So I think all of this is the sequelae from the Me Too movement, which actually is going to bring about the true change that we need to see. The one at a time, kind of this person versus that person, I think that that has been the start. Again, yeah. it's the individual level, right? But then it has been moving out in just a very it short starts, time. It starts the whole ball rolling. Yeah. It's, it's so good talking to you. I mean, I could talk all day. You know, what I really admire about what you do, I mean, you're one of these people who's doing the heavy lifting in this business, right? I mean, people don't know what this is going on right. you know, in institutions you and your staff and the peers you you are like pushing that heavy weight up the hill at the bottom right and you're you're getting it moving we're trying yes. yeah without people <laughs> like you things are not going to change because you're dealing with the young people of, who are dealing with these issues every day so uh, we hope so yeah so it's, fun, <laughs> it's just fantastic Good. so thanks so much for talking to me today my pleasure thank you so i i hope everyone enjoyed listening to this episode of voluminous with jackie deichstack house uh, she has a wealth of information and if anybody from Princeton is listening to this, check out the SHARE website and all the things they do. They're, a, they're an amazing organisation. So I hope listening to these stories is as much of a source of inspiration to you as it is to me. If you're a woman or someone who identifies as a woman, I hope that hearing from my guests like Jackie helps you to believe in yourself and your rightful place in this world as having equal rights that confirms the special contributions that you can make. Let's hope for a future where we rebalance positions of influence and power to include women at every level. To everyone else out there, I hope you too are inspired to speak up for women in your lives and women you see being treated in other in any way other than as equals. So another podcast is in production and I'm having so much fun doing these. They're going to be there's going to be so many more and I will be and these podcasts will be available on all the usual podcast sites as well as through a link on my website, valu.com. 
That's V-E-L-O-U-X.com. And thank you for listening with us today. Great.